Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Larry Rain with us with FX. Uh, FS Investments right now, their chief economist, and of course, with the heritage of looking at foreign exchange. How do you fold, Laura, the dollar into our economy? Most of the interviews we do say, you know, the dollar's worth talking about, but it's not that big a deal. I just don't buy that. So, I, you know, I think the dollar has shifted from being important for full GDP to analyzing GDP growth to investors because we've seen the dollar make... You know, you and I have been around through some huge dollar moves, but the last couple of years we've seen dollar, you know, up 10%, down 10%, back up again. And that has an impact on corporations, especially S&P 500, enormous multinationals with big international supply chains. And you see it having an impact on earnings statements. So to me, that's a more um, near-term risk because when we think about trade, right, that's the normal Mm -hmm. place that the dollar used to feed through into the economy. We've got a bigger fish to fry right now. When analyzing trade, than just looking at sort so of so, what are those dollars. fish? I mean, is it the is just sheer the, the, t- it's the tariff tariffs, and yes. tariffs attacks, uncertainty? Uh, it's full on. You know, it's a, a variety of other protectionist measures and these yeah. you know unilateral mm-hmm. trade agreements. And and Pim, Mary Lovely of Peterson Institute uh, about an hour ago, uh, telling us very clearly that we're going to see twenty five percent tariffs on European automobiles. So that ruins your taxi cab act, right? <laughs> well, it might. Um, Lara, Lara, I want to I find out, have you ever met a CEO that has made a decision based on what currencies we're going to do? No, that's, you know, I think there's a lot of hedging that happens. And, you know, that I goes think on in the Treasury it, Department, it, right? I mean, it doesn't go on at the board level. It does. But we have seen if you look at the earnings statements, you see, um, you know, you see it in the earnings statements. They measure the dollar. They measure the fact that it's, um, you know, weakened as a reason why they've had particularly positive results. We saw that last year. And we know the fact that it strengthens, reduces their ability to repatriate, um, you know, when it when it when we see the opposite. So it's not that so much that they're making future business decisions based on FX, but it's the fact that quarter by quarter you see dollar impact on their earnings statements. Okay, but the, the reason I was going there is that as an investor, if you are trying to think strategically as a chief executive or someone running a major enterprise, those effects over time will be diminished. But it just leads to uncertainty. The more volatility we see in the FX market, you know, the more it's it's the uncertainty that's creeping in through so many different sectors of companies which rely not only on international supply chains, but international revenue chains. And when we get trade piled on top of you know, larger volatility in FX. And the volatility we're seeing right now is not that significant. We've seen much higher volatility in the past. But to the extent that volatility is hitting us from a lot of different angles, it matters. It adds up. The arch question for me, and you see this in Tiffany's up 7% same-store sales, is does the new nominal GDP and the new animal spirit and all these comp numbers mean more investment. And I don't see, I I get the idea CapEx is up, 
But is it goosed? Is it a boom economy investment? I, I don't think so. I think that you, you know, CapEx is a the, really what we see now are CapEx. When we see the numbers of durable goods shipments, we see the numbers of GDP. Those often reflect decisions that were made two years ago, especially the big lumpy investments that we want to get from companies that could really push our productivity ahead, you know, for years to come. Outside of the energy sector, it's it's been hard to find it. And when I think right now the uncertainty we're seeing, I think it's gonna we're gonna feel it, you know, four quarters from now, eight quarters from now, when companies just aren't incentivized to So you believe we're gonna it. see eighteen months from now, two years from now, three years from now, greater investment? No, I think the op- I think it's going to continue to be challenged. I mean, I yeah. you know, we have seen even with the the new accord between the United States and Mexico? Maybe that is a blueprint for for uh, for other trade agreements. I feel like that was more of a rebranding than a new <laughs> than a reinvention. What is SNL going to do with that this weekend? Mexico. You know, with that phone call yesterday. You know, I don't know. It wasn't bad, was it? You didn't. I, I thought I, it was interesting. Well, I thought All to, right, to me, know. within within the reporting I saw, including Catherine Rample at the Washington Post right. and David Fickling with a terrific Bloomberg opinion essay, a really detailed essay. What I noted is the president of Mexico four times in the conversation brought in Canada. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, well, you know, NAFTA was a tripartite agreement, right? But Lara, why why do you believe that these agreements will not have a beneficial effect? The the question is so beneficial to investment, beneficial yeah. to growth. I mean, yes. I, it's I don't know that they're going to have a negative effect. I just, we still don't know a lot of details. And these are agreements that have to be ratified by Congress. And we don't know if the president's going to have the full weight of Congress behind him, you know, when that comes around. Right. Tariffs are unilateral. That's a place where the president right. can act. Lorraine, thank you so much with FS Investments uh, with us uh, today. Now, Mary Lovely with us with the Peterson Institute uh, in Syracuse University. Mary, I'm going to give you an open question to get started. What is the distinction today that you're thinking about after what you observed yesterday on NAFTA? Well, I think we're really interested in seeing more details, um, especially on rules of origin. Uh, The agreement is quite complex. What we had yesterday is just sort of a broad outline. We really need to think about the details because for uh, businesses operating across the three countries, it's going to be the details that are going to determine how much they have to change their business operations. Mary, what are rules of origin? And when we talk about things such as 75% requirements and a separate rule for maybe 40 to 45% for content, that's all kind of jumbled and complicated. Can you kind of disentangle that for us and explain what that means? Sure. Rules of origin are usually the things that make people yawn. Uh, And I think in some sense, this administration is counting on that because the headline news is that this is good for workers. But when one really digs in, uh, it's very unlikely that this is going to produce good news for American workers. And here's why. The rules of origin basically are a way of determining which products will Uh, be able to enjoy duty-free status within the U.S. market. So it limits uh, imported content of goods that are going to be traveling 
uh, freely across the three countries. In the auto case, it means that no more than 25 percent of the content of the automobile can be made outside North America. And that, while that sounds great to the average person, great more jobs for the U.S., what it really does is drive up the price of vehicles and limit our ability to uh, export our vehicles to the rest of the world. Okay, so that's the 25% content. What about the wage rule? Because that also figures into the assembly line that makes the automobiles. Yes, and the wage rule is really a way to get uh, really an advantage for the United States over Mexico. So this really is where the strong arming of Mexico by the United States came into play because Mexican wages are not that high. And by saying that a certain share of, la- of the car has to be made with labor that, that uh, receives a $16 an hour uh, wage means that a, a larger share of the automobile may have to be made within the United States in Canada. So this really is a, a provision that will benefit the United States against Mexico. Okay. You get, we wrote, we, that, I'm writing that down. So I've got those two specific you know, and David Fickling in his, his essay with Anjana Traviti gets into the complexity of this all. Do we usually see this complexity in trade agreements, Mary, or is this unique to how Mr. Trump is doing trade? Oh, well, we do see rules of origin. These are particularly complex. And that is because I believe Ambassador Lighthizer in particular really prefers what we think of as managed trade or supply management. Unfortunately, that means that we are replacing the uh, decisions of business people by government bureaucrats as to how uh, it's formulas. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the bottom line is there's a lot of formulas dictated by government that Mari Barra at General Motors has to memorize. Right. Right. It's going to be a boom for consultants to figure out how to get around them. Okay. Uh, because once you start restricting yeah. the ability of, of companies to do what's economically right. beneficial, they're going to f- try to find ways around it. So what does um, uh, Christian Friedland do today? She's going to wander down to Washington. Let's uh, be clear here. The president of the United States does not have a lot of love and affection. Christopher Friedland the is prime the prime minister uh, of Canada, the Canadian trade foreign negotiator. Minister, tra- yeah. trade negotiator. So what do you expect to see from Canada? Why should they why should they enjoy this Trump lateral party? Well, they have different issues than than the Mexicans. What are they? Uh, well, in particular, they were very much against the sunset provision, which meant that after five years, this deal would go uh, away unless it was explicitly renewed. Uh, that was softened. This is a 16-year period. What After six years, the agreement has to be renewed as opposed to automatically going away unless it is renewed. So that has been softened. Uh, The Canadians, and I think rightly so, were concerned about the uncertainty that that entered for uh, investors as to whether, you know, when they invested in North America, what would be the rules operating, you know, five years hence. So they were against that. They may be able to accept this softer version. Um, They're also concerned about their ability to... uh, basically complain about U.S. trade restrictions that take away Mm -hmm. some of the benefits that they think they've agreed to. And people in the past might have said, well, that won't happen. But now we're seeing that this happens all the time with with the Trump administration. Uh, Basically, many of our partners have uh, seen uh, them levies on steel and aluminum, on washing machines, 
on other things. Now, washing machines was a safeguard allowed under WTO. But nevertheless, all these things say, hey, at any moment, some of our exports can be subject to tariffs that we thought were already negotiated away. So this is a real concern for the Canadians. Mary, does this really matter? In the sense that the growing market is China. There was an announcement today, for example, that Nissan is going to be building the first made-for-China electric automobile. This is a developing market, talking about China. The United States is a developed market. Does, is, are we talk, is this basically, if you looked at it five years hence, that we're kind of discussing how many angels fit on the head of a pin? Well, I don't think so. I think there's two ways to look at that. First, the American market remains very important, not only because it is large. It may not be growing as quickly, although it is growing fairly healthily for a developed country um, in the scheme of things. Um, but it's also a market where the competition in the past has been very fierce. And quality demands are very high. So you see developing countries uh, in emerging markets having to reach a certain level of, co of competitiveness and competency before they can even, you know, really sell into the American mm -hmm. or European market. So we're very important in that way. On the other hand, what we're doing now is creating Fortress America. We're creating a lot of trade barriers for our companies to import inputs that will keep them competitive in Asian markets. And then we're inviting retaliation. If this administration moves ahead with national security tariffs on imported vehicles, we're going to see more retaliation yeah. from our trading yeah. partners, and that's going to hurt our exporters. A terrific briefing. Mary Lovely, thank you so much. With the Peterson Institute, she and Chad Bond have just done... Uh, Pim, I just think smart, smart work of cutting through uh, the many rhetorics. David Harrow joins us uh, now from Harrow Associates. David, before we get to investment right now, a brewer's update is in, uh, in, in, in order. How are the brewers of Milwaukee doing? Well, the brewers are hanging in there, Tom. I mean, they're, they're you know, got a good shot at postseason play. I agree that all the focus is on Red Sox, Yankees, and maybe the Astros and, you know, a couple Cubs, teams. Cubs, don't forget the Cubs, Cubs. Cubs as well. And there's all these teams like Milwaukee percolating underneath to make it That's interesting right. uh, as we go. Let's get to it. David Harrell, on international investment, do you have a normal enthusiasm with all the EM crisis, is it a greater enthusiasm or are you looking at General Motors? No, levels are at greater enthusiasm. I mean, it's been a very volatile summer where you've had extreme price movements in certain sectors in particular overseas. You mentioned the emerging markets. I would also mention what's happening in Europe, European financials, European autos, some industrials. Been very, very weak on a lot of these macro headlines and meanwhile, the business conditions, the underlying business conditions have been more than acceptable. So this is what provides opportunity is when you get these exaggerated price movements as a result of kind of macroeconomic disturbances. So this is this is good for bottom up value stock pickers this summer. Though, you know, it's you got to be you're very busy. There's never rest. But, you know, that's the nature of summers as of recent. Uh, within that and the opportunity as a value of EU banking, we had a esteemed guest this morning talking up Banco Santander, but frame how inexpensive EU banking is right now. 
I mean, if you look at what I think is one of the highest qualities EU Bank, uh, BNP Paribas, Banco National Paris, um, if you look at its where it trades on a price to book value or a price to earnings and not just current earnings, kind of normal earnings, it probably trades at a good 35 to 40% discount to say a JP Morgan. Now, its return on equity, equity will probably be a point or two lower in, in normalcy. If, if uh, JP Morgan is kind of mid-teens, uh, perhaps BNP will be low double digits, but still I don't yeah. believe that this valuation differential yeah. uh, is, is, uh, is sustainable. And this all happened, this really started to happen in February when the Italian couldn't get their act together and forming right, a government. Right. And, you know, this really hit the European financials. And we've seen this happen so many times right. since the financial crisis. Now, Pim, I would note the <clears throat> dividend on BNP Paribas is, in the, you know, this is not a typo on radio. Go ahead. 5.80%. Yeah, but as David just mentioned, uh, the actual capital appreciation, not there. Yeah. Hey, David, you know, I know that BNP Paribas is the largest holding in your Oakmark International Fund, the fund down a little bit, uh, just less than 8% so far this year. I'm wondering whether you are thinking about changing the geographic allocation in the fund. The top allocation right now is to the United Kingdom, nearly 23%, but you've got companies like Daimler, Allianz, Credit Suisse, uh, BMW, Glencore, uh, CNH uh, Industrial, are you thinking about maybe shifting to a more concentrated continent of Europe position? Well, not necessarily. What we do is position ourselves based on where we find the underlying value of the companies themselves. And all those companies that you listed and named exist in our top position. And they may jockey around depending on what happens any given day, week, or month. But basically, our position sizes within the portfolio and our weightings within the portfolio are a function of the discount those stocks are trading at versus our measurement of their intrinsic value. And what's happened is, is our measurement of intrinsic value in most of these names has done nothing but gone up. But meanwhile, because of these headlines starting in spring and in summer, the prices have been down and in some cases a very extreme downward movements in price and especially in those two sectors, the automotive sector of Europe and as well as the financial sector of Europe. So as those prices decline and that value gap opens, we actually see more opportunity. So our decision making is predicated on trying to take advantage of that gap, that gap between intrinsic value and price knowing that in the short term, Mr. Market could be very finicky, very irrational, very volatile. And even though it's painful, you mentioned, you know, year to date, our numbers haven't been so good. But this actually provides us with the basis to outperform over the medium and long term, taking advantage of what I call are these exaggerated and unnatural prices. Is Intesa San Paolo, the uh, Torin uh, Italy based bank, is that an example? This is a perfect example. And by the way, you look at that dividend yield, uh, you know, you're probably pushing a normal yield of around seven or eight percent. Why has this stock been so weak? Has it been because of more loan losses? No, their loan losses, in fact, are declining. 
and they're actually picking up some lending growth. The whole issue behind Intesa is where it's domiciled. It's domiciled in Italy, where Italy is having some instability, political instability, despite the fact that Intesa's operating basis is in northern Italy, which is very healthy, which is showing some good growth. Uh, it's a very healthy balance sheet, very healthy capital position. But because it's in Italy, it's been extremely weak. In U.S. dollar terms, it's probably down somewhere in the mid-20% since uh, early January. Uh, David Harrow with us. We're with Harris Associates. Lots to talk about. Big elections taking place, a lot of primaries today. Here to tell us all about them is Greg Giroux, our Bloomberg government elections reporter, joining us from our 99.1 studios in Washington, D.C. Greg, always a pleasure. Let's start with Arizona. What's going on there and how important is this for the Democrats? Well, Arizona is critical to the Democratic campaign, the underdog campaign to win control of the Senate from the Republicans. Jeff Flake is retiring and you have primaries today for his seat. I think the race to watch is the Republican primary, a three-way primary that includes Congresswoman Martha McSally, who's up against Kelly Ward, who ran against John McCain in the 2016 Republican primary, trying to run as a more conservative alternative and more of a pro-Trump candidate than Martha McSally. And then you have Joe Arpaio, the uh, controversial former Arizona sheriff who won a pardon from Donald Trump. Uh, Arpaio and Ward are probably likely to split a lot of the anti-establishment vote, so I think McSally uh, goes on to win and uh, will advance in the November election, probably against one of her colleagues, Democratic Congresswoman Kirsten Sinema. It's a state that uh, Trump narrowly carried in 2016, and it will be key to uh, key to the uh, one of the top seven or eight Senate races in November. And just quickly, any idea of uh, who the uh, Arizona governor will select to fill the seat left vacant by the passing of Senator John McCain? Uh, we don't know quite yet. Uh, the governor is keeping his cards close to his vest. He will appoint a Republican uh, because he is a Republican, but also because state <clears throat> law requires it. Um, there are several names that have uh, been speculated, including Cindy McCain, the late senator's widow. I don't think that will happen. Yeah. Republican leaders are going to want someone who will run in the special election in 2020 uh, because uh, Arizona, as I mentioned, is competitive and they want it. The Republican leaders want a strong candidate to defend right. that seat when it comes up again. Are these primaries different than the ones months and months and months ago? I mean, I think of the presidential primary, how they change over time, or is just a primary is a primary? A primary is a primary. Uh, you know, in, in this case here, you know, congressional primaries are a little odd in that they start as early as in March in states like Illinois and Texas. And we're kind of getting near to the end with Florida and Arizona, which traditionally vote late after today. We'll only have a handful of New England states mostly to, left to vote. But um, people are going to be watching the primary turnout very closely, especially in Florida, where you have contested primaries uh, for, in both parties for the governorship. Uh, in the Republican primary, President Trump has intervened to back a preferred candidate, for candidate there. Tell us about Florida, but specifically about Donna Shalala. Yeah, Donna Shalala, um, she was 
President Clinton's, Bill Clinton's uh, Health and Human Services Secretary, uh, later the President of the University of Miami. Uh, this is a Miami area congressional district that Shalala is seeking in today's primary. Uh, she has several opponents in the Democratic primary, but because of her name recognition and fundraising, uh, she's likely to win perhaps with a plurality of the vote. Uh, this is a district that is Hispanic majority. It is anti-Trump, but it's held by a Republican, Eliana Rosleitnen, who is retiring, and it is a top target of Democrats seeking a net gain of 23 seats to overturn the majority. It's a must-win uh, for the Democrats. While we've got you on overnight, the news of courts saying to North Carolina, your gerrymandering, which I believe tilts to Republicans, is just not going to go even before the election. Translate that for us, Greg Giroux. Yeah, so a federal court uh, last night issued a an opinion that was over 300 pages that basically invalidated a Republican-drawn North Carolina congressional district map as an unlawful partisan gerrymander. And But it's not clear yet if that map will be used in the elections coming up in just a little over two months. I suspect that the Republicans defending the map will try and ask to... Uh, stay the ruling or block it until after the election, noting how close we are. We've already had the primary elections in North mm-hmm. Carolina in the spring. So we have to wait and see what the uh, what the court is uh, going to do, what the Supreme Court might do, uh, because it'll certainly be appealed uh, to that body. Good yeah. rundown. Greg Giroux, thank you. Loved your work earlier this morning as well. Mr. Giroux with Bloomberg Government in Washington, really encyclopedic on all this stuff. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.